Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Well, hello, this is Colin. Uh, so let me tell you a story. Uh, it's a few years ago. I don't know how many years ago. Let's see, it's like about 2016. Uh, New Year's Eve uh, up in New Hampshire at the home of Anthony Brooks, who's a pretty well-known uh, NPR reporter, anchor, stuff like that. So um, big New Year's Eve party. I didn't really know much of anybody there. Uh, and I start talking to this guy named Ian who lives in the area. And he says he's writing a book. He's been working for years on a book about liminality. And I could just see on his face that he's sort of waiting for the usual response, which is, what? <laughs> and instead, I was like really excited. I said, liminality. And I just started pouring out all my thoughts about liminality to Ian, who actually, I think, had the unusual experience for him of needing to get away from me at the party because he didn't want to talk about liminality all night. So we're doing a show about liminality, and I'm going to explain it in just a second and then have somebody explain it even better. Um, and I should say that I contacted Anthony Brooks and said, can you get me back in touch with Ian? Because one of the things that was clear about Ian was he wasn't going to finish this book. And that has a lot to do with liminality. Liminality is about the state in between. It's about the it comes from a Latin word meaning threshold. Uh, and it, it's about uh, so for Ian, he is in a liminal space working on his book about liminality. He has started, but he hasn't finished and he may occupy that space forever anyway. Anthony said that he would try to reach in, and then I never heard from him again. So that's another thing that's kind of stuck in a liminal space, the whole idea of having Ian on this show. So, yeah, liminal spaces. I mean, you kind of start out in one. The womb is a liminal space. Uh, and the cocoon, uh, for uh, uh, which we know all kinds of grisly things about, uh, is the cocoon is a liminal space uh, for the caterpillar to butterfly. Uh, a bunker is a liminal space. And, and so, so on and so forth. Anyway, space, I think, well, actually, I'm going to have the experts define this. So let me tell you who's with us a little bit later in the show. We're going to talk to Gerd Leonhard, a futurist speaker and author of several books. And he's going to talk about what he thinks happens when we come out of our liminal space, if we come out of our liminal, liminal space, because that's also a question I think worth asking. Uh, but here on the first segment, uh, we're going to talk to Blanka Domagalska. Uh, she's been with us before for a show about pods. Uh, and at the time, she talked about liminality. And I, I said, well, we got to do that show too. Lecturer at Otis College of Art and Design, teaching courses on product design with expert in art history, media and cultural theory, philosophy and aesthetic liminality. Also with us now is Leisha Palin, a professor of computer science as well as professor and founding chair of the Department of Information Science at the University of Colorado at Boulder. She is an expert in what's called crisis informatics. We're going to get that uh, into your head in just a second here. But uh, Blanca, first of all, welcome back. And second of all, I did my best to define liminality. But why don't you give us uh, a much more expert take on what it is that we're talking about? Hi, Colin. Hi. It's, it's to be here again. Um, thank you for inviting me. Well, liminality. It's one of my favorite subjects as well. And uh, 
strangely enough, I actually have a personal story about liminality as well, if only one. <laughs> um, once upon a time, I ordered um, the book Waiting for Good Doll on Amazon. <laughs> it never came. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so that's by definition is liminality. But um, it's, it's sort of this very useful um, term that has been coined in anthropology originally. And, um, you know, of course, today it can be applied to a number of things and phenomena in the world as our world is becoming increasingly liminal. Um, but originally, just like you said, it, it actually refers to in the in-between spaces, the spaces that are not well-defined. But and, it yeah, also has yeah. a function. And when we talk about it in anthropology, quite frequently it has to do, for example, with rites of passage, right? So, and often in a multi-step rite of passage within uh, any kind of society, there's kind of a liminal moment, a kind of living bardo where, where things happen and sometimes the normal rules of order are suspended and even hierarchies are temporarily suspended before whoever is going through this rite comes out on the other side. Do I, do I have that more or less correct? That's very much correct. This is by definition um, by Victor Turner, who sort of established these uh, stages of liminal um, of liminal rituals. So essentially, um, two anthropologists, um, Arnold van Gennep, um, who sort of established what liminal, um, well, not liminal itself, but he was studying specifically ritual processes um, in um, in tribal societies. So in his book, The Rites of Passage, he sort of described a number of those um, passages. And based on his work, Victor Turner um, coined the term liminality. And so essentially what happens in a rite of passage, you have three uh, different um, stages. The first one is the stage of separation from the tribe. The second is the liminal stage where the person is being tried in some way. And then finally, there is the stage of reintegration um, into the tribe as a new entity. So if you can imagine, you know, the right, rites of passage for little boys who are children and then um, are sort of separated from their mothers and are put on through different trials um, that are very often physically um, challenging. And so in that liminal moment of trials, um, there are established ego, their established um, way of being in their society falls apart because there are no children, not children anymore. They're not protected in that way. And therefore, um, they have to acquire or invent a different type of being in the world. And right. so by the time they get back to the village, they become somebody else. Uh, in this particular case, a warrior, for example, right? And they're greeted as a warrior because they have prevailed. All right, so that gives you the story. That gives us the anthropological perspective. Let's get to Alicia Palin right now. Uh, you've been looking at something that you call crisis informatics. Maybe just for starters, uh, you should say something about the degree to which a crisis is a liminal space. I know you've been looking at this since at least 2004. Yeah, hi. So, yeah, disasters and crises are considered, often propel people into liminal spaces and usually unexpectedly. 
Um, the difference we see, of course, in this event is that we're all in a kind of liminal space. We're experiencing it differently, but we're all in one um, with disasters arising from from you know severe weather there are regions where populations are affected and are in a liminal state of 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 things being upset and not knowing exactly when things how things will return back to normal but there's always a view that other parts of the world are going to be okay and often help can be can be can be retrieved from them and so here we have a very different kind of crisis event where we're all in this liminal state together Right. You know, sometimes when we think about apocalyptic scenarios, that idea of the bunker comes up, you know, and the bunker, uh-huh. the bunker is a liminal space. You go down into the bunker, presumably you wait out uh, the crisis, then you come back out and uh, find out what's what's left of the world. But now we're kind of like a third of us are in bunkers. You know, I mean, the bunkers are mostly our houses um, and, and they're unusual Laisha, in the sense that they're heavily networked bunkers. You think of a bunker as a place where you go down and you're alone and isolated mm-hmm. with a small group of people. But these bunkers are all talking to one another. So so what happens when that happens? Right. So, you know, I, I think of them as being isolated and kind of islanded. Um, and, and it makes me think, actually, of the narrative trope of the person deserted on an island, right, where they're marking time, you know, with a with an etch in the rock to say this is day one, this is day two. It's that itself becomes a kind of ritual. It's also a a, a sign that you know maybe someday somebody will know that I was here, that I spent time here. But here now we're in our bunkers, we're in our we're on our islands, and when we document the experience using social media, often. Instead of, you know, marks in the rock, we're saying, I'm here, this is what I'm doing, what are you doing? And now we're these networked kind of islands, which um, allows us to participate in the experience as it's being felt locally in places around the world, potentially. Um, and it is kind of itself, I find, fairly anchoring, right? It, it tethers us to, to these to these other places where... where um, the hazard is similar. The experiences might be a little bit different. Right. And so where the bunker and or desert uh, island analogy falls down a little bit is that usually emergence from the bunker or leaving the deserted island um, is like a, an all or nothing thing. It's a dichotomous experience. But right. here, uh, it, it's a much more gradual trial and error kind of thing. And, and I do notice these networks kind of, uh, for example, there was somebody on my Twitter feed uh, last night saying, I went to West Harvard Center. People weren't wearing masks. They were also standing very close together. I'm not going back there for a while. You know, and that's, I think that's part of the thing that you see, right? People begin sharing useful information information about the transition out of the cocoon. Right. I think that's what, yeah, right. They're sort of, they're, they're, they are doing that. I think it's also helpful to see how, if one is able to be connected with many around the world, how the local, the national politics and the um, sort of the national direction in these different places affect how the the, the the community responds and then how the individual responds. And so, though, you know, as we think about going outside again and engaging thing, engaging with other people again, it's not exactly obvious how to do that. It seems like there's only a, a few set of options, and yet 
I think many of us are finding that hearing what other people are doing gives us an idea about how to interact with the world that we were once so familiar with, which is so interesting that we actually have to get, I think, advisories on things that were normally really mundane before. Right. And and I think the another part of this is that we expect or hope, a lot of us anyway, those of us who are more or less satisfied with our existences uh, in December of 2019, we are waiting, waiting, waiting for our old lives to come back. But right. I would guess that as you've looked at these other, some of these other crises that you've studied, whether it's a tsunami or Katrina or mm-hmm. whatever, that's actually not typically what happens, right? Right. Well, so it often, that's often true for victims of disaster. One reassuring thing, again, is that victims of disaster are at least comforted by knowing other people have the normal life that once was. And again, that's a kind of anchoring thing. Um, here, we can't really look at each other to say, well, gosh, you know, at least they're in this kind of stable state. Maybe they can help or I can look to that for some kind of idea that things could be normal again. Um, and so we, we lose that. So then by even needing to get sort of a kind of instruction about how to go out in the world again, that makes it very plain that we're in a very liminal state. We might be able to maintain routines in our own household, but to be able to venture outside with kind of confidence and not feel it, that tells us very strongly every day that we're in a liminal state and, we, and that maybe we might be that way for a long time. Okay, let's go back to uh, Blanca Domogalska for a second here. So one of the things that's happening, and it's happening right now as we're having this conversation, I typically would be in a studio where I could see Kat Pastor uh, in uh, the control room, Josh Nalea, who's this episode producer, would be sitting uh, on another side of another piece of, of glass from me. Uh, we would pass in the hallways, all, all of that kind of stuff. And in some cases, probably not in your case, the guests would be in the studio too. Now this entire transaction is highly dependent on digital networks, whether it's Skype or Zoom or phone lines. And, and Blanca, all of our interactions almost, or more, uh, such a preponderance of our, our interactions during this liminal time are digital in nature. So what, what should we worry about or what should we think about as we ponder that new reality? Yeah, okay, so I, I think we've got, um, maybe even uh, try to, uh, if Josh could get involved here, try to see, the, this is perfect, actually. <laughs> um, but we, we may need to try to get a conventional phone connection with her or something, but the Skype is definitely not working. Um, all right, so I'll, I'm going to go back to you, Leisha, because sure. this is the same, I'll ask you the same question. Here, here we are, you, you were just signaling towards this idea. Here we are, we're more dependent on Facebook, we're more dependent uh, on Twitter, on email, on things like that, which I think in the past we knew were not 100% identical replicas of ourselves. Who we are uh, in, in digital life on social media isn't exactly us, and we're dealing with a lot of people who aren't exactly themselves either. So I don't know, how, how, what should we think about that? 
Well, I think um, maybe I can just take it back to, you know, what crisis informatics is sure. uh, first, which is to say that it's, it's the examination and the design for supporting socio-behavioral interaction, so large-scale interaction in crises, and acknowledging that that today is mediated so much by the digital experience. So one thing we ca- I can say, in the, in the kinds of disasters and hazards we're a little more familiar with, you know, hurricanes, earthquakes, wildfire, um, you know, the, the, the ability to move online to seek help uh, and to seek information to then be able to help oneself is was extraordinary, right? Like, uh, you know, as soon as this was possible, this is what we did. Because people who are under threat for disaster, they help themselves, and they are always looking for information. They used to, you know, only talk to their neighbors and their friends and get advice as well as listening to the news and what authorities had to say. And they would put together a web of information and then, you know, assess risk and then figure out what they're going to do, how they're going to evacuate, when they're going to evacuate. Um, And so... You know, here we have, there is no evacuation. There's not a lot of action to take except retraction, which is kind of itself a, it's a kind of action, but it's a bizarre, it's not one we're comfortable with, right, where we just, we're not doing something, and that's our plan. Um, And so we will still go online to always to sense make, what is this event about, how are you dealing with it? How are you experiencing it? How are you feeling? Um, and I think as time goes, and so we're seeing this in this expression, this, the, the informatics of this crisis is about sort of these writings of personal experience um, and the sort of the emotional journey that we're going through to, to come to terms with it and sit with it for a long time. All right, Blanca, I think we've got you back on conventional phone. So um, uh, I think you did hear, hear my question, and, and Leisha has been talking about it too. You know, we were gradually, 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 maybe rapidly becoming more digital uh, anyway in the way that we communicate and interact. But this is so all-encompassing. What should we be thinking about? What signs would, should we be looking for? You know, it's really interesting because um, in that sense, technology is is sort of very, it's very universal, but it's also very personal, right? So in in this particular instance, it actually, this is why it sort of works out with this particular type of crisis where the crisis is also, you know, it's, it's global, but it's also personal crisis, which in a lot of ways, you know, every liminal space is very subjective, very, um, very personal. And um, so the technology actually lends itself to um, using it in a situation of this sort. You still there? (laughs) We are accursed. All right, Alicia, I'm going to go back to you. Um, So um, one of the things that that, uh, I guess uh, I'm intrigued by uh, is uh, the fact that this, this is not a situation where um, you know, it's not, it's a little bit different from a tornado or a flash flood or a tsunami or something like that. It's, it's of indeterminate length. And one of the things that I, I think is there in your article that we're going to post up on the webpage for this, uh, is, um, you kind of have to, what, kind of monitor your own signs, keep track of who you are while you're stuck in this liminal space. You actually suggest kind of a diet of a few things to people. 
Yeah. So, I mean, you know, again, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to this idea of Robinson Crusoe um, and that, you know, that that sort of character in our in our stories. But, you know, it's it's so important to mark periods of change. So, you know, you talked about the liminal experience of the womb, and we might say all of life is a liminal experience until we pass away, right? But we don't feel like we're constantly liminal because we structure our days. We have to go to work. We go to school. We have to clean our houses. These structural things that at least remove this feeling of being constantly liminal there. And and rituals themselves are kind of markers of, of life that, again, structure it. And so when we're experiencing this kind of very clear clearly liminal period that's finally obvious to us as being just quite liminal, we have to do the same kind of thing, but it might be much more micro. So, you know, doing the smallest of things just to mark the period of change is helpful. So, you know, maybe that means it could mean some, doing something new. It uh, doesn't have to always be productive, but it can be something new, like, you know, planting, a, a, I'm planting a garden. And I know this is something I probably wouldn't have had time to do, but each plant I plant, it, it means something to me. It means this is what I'm doing now, and I'll remember when this is over, whatever that, whatever that is, I'll remember the time I planted a garden. And so it helps me think about how I'll remember this, how I'll commemorate this experience in the future. But each day, it structures my day, and that's what we really need, are the routines that structure our day. I I also like the idea, you talk about acknowledging that loss cannot be given up in total and at once, right? There are ways in which there are daily small defeats. Uh, and, and I think you talk about maybe missing your son's graduation or something like that, but, but that has to be put into some kind of continuum, I guess. That's right. I mean, you know, it's just, you know, I think, I think we all know that there, there's a lot we've lost. We've felt it ourselves. We, we, we see it in others and we feel a lot of pain there and we don't know what's to come. And it's, it's just, it would just be far too devastating to think that it all might go away. Um, and so I, I find that for, again, these things that are especially ritualistic, it can be dinner at night. Uh, it was my son's graduation. It was my daughter's prom. Though those things didn't happen exactly as they normally happen, we hung on to little aspects of it that gave us joy. So for my daughter, it was shopping for her dress online. Even if she wasn't going to go to the prom, we just had to hold on to a little something. For dinner every night, which is part of that routine, and then it becomes this daily ritual, You know, we spend a little more time at it. It's not this rush of getting, you know, getting three kids down to dinner and then off you go to the next thing. It, we can just dwell on it a little bit more. And I think finding the little bits of joy in the things that are still there are, are the ways, I think, in which we can move forward. All right. So we're going to grab a, a little break here. Um, and I think we've reestablished uh, communications with Blanca Domagalska. Uh, and uh, we've been talking also to Leisha Palin, a professor of computer science and professor and founding chair of the Department of Information Science at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Uh, we're going to take a little break. We'll be right back with more liminality. I'm standing in the middle of life with my pants behind me. As you don't try dragging my bed, dropping the bomb on my street. Come on, baby. 
All right. So this is a show about uh, limin- liminalism or liminality, the the quality of being kind of stuck on the threshold between one space and another space that uh, betwixt and between sense. Uh, and it's um, obviously um, something that you're living with right now. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about what what you should be thinking about while you're in that liminal, liminal space and also what it's going to be like when you get out. Uh, we are, I think, back in touch with Blanka Domogalska, uh, who was really the first person to get us thinking about all this. Uh, she's a lecturer at the Otis College of Art and Design, teaching courses on product design with expert in uh, expertise in art history, media and cultural theory and aesthetic liminality. Blanka, are you back with us? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Yes, you sound fine. So uh, this is uh, um, one of the things that I thought about uh, as we were getting ready for the show was I I did think once again about cocoons. uh, And I had just by chance read a piece by one of our favorite writers on this show, a guy named Sam Anderson, uh, who you know, I mean, the cocoon is something we've sort of mythologized and maybe romanticized. He decided to find out what's happening in there. He said what a caterpillar is doing in its self-imposed quarantine is basically digesting itself. It's using enzymes to reduce its body to goo, turning itself into a soup of ex-caterpillar, a nearly formless sludge oozing around a couple of leftover essential organs, tracheal tubes, uh, and gut. Only after this near uh, total self annihilation can the new growth begin inside that gruesome mush are special clusters of cells called imaginal discs uh, <clears throat> and its actual biology uh, the, the seeds of crucial butterfly structures like eyes and wings and gen- genitalia and stuff and so you know we're in this cocoon right now too and And we're asking a lot of questions about our own bodies uh, while we're in this liminal state. Uh, We're not presumably turning into goo or digesting ourselves and making something new. But our bodies are something that we're really not confident about. We're worried that our bodies are going to get sick during this liminal state. And we're putting things like masks over our bodies to change uh, how they behave in in outer spaces. So I don't know, maybe, uh, Blanca, you you could reflect on this a little bit. Well, liminal spaces by design are intense. It's an intense experience um, because it is aimed at transformation. Um, So this is all within the definition uh, of a liminal space, strangely enough. And definitely our bodies are highlighted in this particular liminality. You know, and um, spaces like this come with their opportunities and dangers, right? So... um, it is still unknown uh, how we are going to resolve this situation at the end of it and if there is an end uh, in sight. Um, however, in the meantime, it is a, a very ex- intense experience to all of us. And it's interesting that it's happening t- on a global scale and on a very subjective personal scale at the same time. Um, so what's interesting to me is the fact that the emphasis has been placed this time um, on the body itself because the body has the potential to get infected. Um, And the bodies are becoming scrutinized in ways that we have never experienced before. Um, We thought that post 9-11, you know, we have been employing already quite um, 
intense measures, um, you know, in, in sort of public spaces in order to track bodies and um, sort of figure out who's going in and out of countries and document the whole process in very new and, and um, also body conscious ways, right? Um, but this is a whole different level of emphasis, right? This is on the level of microbiology. Um, so yes, this is going to have huge repercussions um, as to how we are going to reconstitute ourselves at the end of this liminality uh, if, if such thing comes. Um, so, so that's my reaction to it. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, you know, I think you know, I, we often we can think about liminality in two different ways. One of them is that whole idea uh, of the, the the caterpillar and the cocoon turning in, so the, into a butterfly. So the the thing that's inside the the liminal space is what changes, and that's also true in that anthropological model we talked about at the beginning. The young man uh, leaves the village, goes through some kind of initiation uh, process, and comes back as a warrior. The world hasn't changed. The person has changed. The world hasn't changed. The caterpillar has changed into a butterfly. But there's another possible thing that can happen, which is the world changes. So you come out of your liminal space and the world uh, that you are confronted with is the world is not the world that you left behind. Um, and we might, I suppose, Blanca, in this situation, have both experiences. We'll change and we'll also confront a changed world. But that changed world is, is kind of a worrisome prospect, right? Yeah. Um, well, you know, it, it has to do with... Um it has to do with relationships of power. Um, you know, um, so far, humans have been sort of dealt with in a political sense um, as citizens. So um, in, in that sense, we have been, you know, we have passports, we have birth certificates, um, you know, and, and in that sense, uh, we can move around, um, sign contracts, um, and have essentially perform life. Right. Um, and being a citizen gives us certain uh, layer of protections as well um, and rights, obviously. Um, however, the moment when the emphasis shifts to uh, viewing us um, just as bodies, just as biology, just as um, molecular structures, um, that level of protection doesn't exist anymore. Um, because there is no such a thing, you know, we will have to literally come up with a whole new way of um, certifying human beings um, when it comes to uh, their immunity system, right? Um, you know, has the person had uh, exposure to COVID-19? Uh, do we have um, antibodies? Do we not have antibodies? Is there a vaccine? Has the person been vaccinated once the vaccine is available? You know, and that, that, that sort of certification uh, we'll add another layer um, to sort of put a handle on um, how we deal with each other and how we deal in the relationships that previously have been, you know, sort of enacted outside of that additional layer that is um, sort of looming over us at the moment. Um, so in the end, it's a, it's a it's a question of power when it comes to understanding the type of um, the a world that we are going to emerge into. Um, and what sort of um, tools are we going to have in order to negotiate within that world? Right. Um, because I, ultimately it's a question of agency. What kind of agency are we going to have in the new world? So um, 
Yeah, and, and I think you know we've already seen an imagined version of what you're talking about. You know, what if what if we what if we first and foremost just treated everybody as kind of a, a life form with certain qualities or not qualities, uh, certain antibody levels and infections and stuff like that, and didn't really think of them as whole persons. In the movie Contagion, near the end, people have these wristbands uh, that have QR codes on them that indicate whether they've been vaccinated, you know, things like that, whether they're safe. We should. Be be so lucky is to have it just be uh, a wristband. I mean, I think there's probably some likelihood if if it, if it turns out that coming out of this liminal state, that the big question is the one that you just posed. You know, what's our biological status? Have we been vaccinated? Do have we had the disease already? And we have antibodies? Or you know, we'll we'll be lucky if they don't want to put chips or, or some kind of slightly transhuman device on us, wouldn't you say? Well, absolutely, <laughs> because, you know, to every sort of problem, there is a solution, right? And um, that solution very often these days is technological. And uh, there, is, it's, there is sort of a, a nice dovetailing between the themes um, that are enacted in our lives right now, which is microbiology, and um, sort of the miniaturization of the technological devices. And the fact that we can actually perform a, a number of operation, technological operations on a mo molecular level at this point uh, using nanotechnology, for example. Um, so, yes, that's, that's a sort of a very plausible speculation for the possible future, indeed. Um, the other question, I guess, is who decides when the liminal state is over? Uh, you know, I mean, we think of this. Uh, in terms of our own imagined endpoints that either involve the arrival of vaccines or, or, or some other change that allows us to move out of the state, the holding pattern that we're in right now, and, and into something else that's a more fully realized existence. But but there's I don't know James Howard Kunstler talks about the long emergency <laughs> that you could be in an emergency that is first of all di dictated by other people and not that changeable by you. So I know this is something that you've thought about too. Like who gets to decide when the liminal state is over, and would maybe some economic or state interests have an interest in just saying, oh no, this is just the way things are going to be for a while. Well, um, this is the danger. So this is one of the dangers, as opposed to opportunities of a liminal space. Um, it's what I call the perpetual liminal space. Um, so liminal spaces are interesting and transformational as long as they have an end of some sort, some sort of finality, some sort of uh, reestablishment of the human being as a subject who can act in the world. And um, the perpetual liminality, uh, it's, it's a sort of a hypothetical situation in which the liminality never ends. And there, we are pre being presented with um, new crisis um, perpetually, which, you know, to some extent you can sort of argue that this is, this is what we are experiencing uh, in, a, in the modern world, in a 21st century, sort of on daily basis. We are in this perpetual liminality. We have to dismantle ourselves all the time, and now the pressures are actually increasing because the threats are global. Um, and so who decides? <laughs> um, that, is, that is the question of power. Um, you know, so technically speaking, right, the, the way we sort of see things right now is, you know, the, the government would decide or, 
you know, hopefully aided by uh, the advice of um, medical and scientific professionals. Um, however, uh, that is uncertain as well these days, right? So it is, it is not certain who's going to make that decision in the end. And so the decision right now has been um, moved to, on, to the state level. And so every state can decide for themselves. Um, you know, and, and in, in that sense, um, it should be up to the people. However, I don't believe that we have enough information to make such decisions at the moment. Um, and the information is being produced as we speak. So for the moment, uh, we are sort of stuck in this perpetual liminality um, in which we don't really have much agency. And, and that's, that's precisely the problem, you know, the, the danger of, of the situation um, that we, it's, it's sort of un, um, undecided, what are we as human beings? Like, what, what, what is it that we are? <laughs> are we citizens or, or are we just biological beings? And um, so that, that sort of um, distinction between um, being a citizen and a biological being is, is something that goes back to even Greek times and recently have been sort of touched upon or actually deeply studied by people like Michel Foucault and Georgia Gamben. And um, they sort of talk about the distinction um, between Zoe, which is the natural life, and Zoe means natural life in Greek. Um, and usually, traditionally, that would sort of take place at home. And the bios, and the bios is the political life, and which would take place um, in the polis, which is the city. Um, so traditionally, uh, women, children, and elderly were sort of assigned to the space of the home, um, to Zoe. They were, they were just sort of the reproductive life, the life in itself. Um, and um, in Greece, uh, men, you know, were participating in the political life in bios. And of course, that has been changing throughout the history. We, of course, know that we um, today have been um, all participating in the political process and so on. Um, however, uh, recently we have all been um, relegated to the uh, to to the space of the home. Um, so both men and women, children and the elderly, cats and dogs are stuck at home. <laughs> and in that sense, we have been sort of um, reduced to just natural life, to Zoe. We are all Zoe at home, um, having our uh, political life being suspended to some extent. We don't really have the, the, the police life uh, in the forum, right? Um, we cannot um, congregate anywhere and sort of have our discussions and exchanges the way we used to. So this is where the technology steps in and sort of provides an, um, provides, um, an alternative to that forum, right? The technology, in fact, becomes our forum and becomes the bios space, the police. Um, you know, and, and for the longest time now, um, in sort of postmodern history, you've been talking, we've been sort of bewailing the death of the um, city spaces, Right, that they're sort of ineffective and they're falling apart. The architecture of the postmodern cities does not allow for congregation, does not allow for sort of um, the, the political life as it used to be. Um, so this would sort of drive the final nail in the coffin of that idea. And <laughs> because right now the, the forum happens online, right? And we are performing it, in fact, right now. Um, 
so to that extent, this is how technology inserts itself um, and, and fills that need. Um, but technology, it's also a, a sort of a provocative space, right? Um, because I argue in my writing that um, the sort of the um, protections and the rights and the agencies that we normally have in, in our regular uh, political life, the one that we've been used to up until recently, um, are very different from um, from the, the same ones. I mean, they're not the same as, as our rights and protections that we have online. Online, we become, we sort of, this Zoe sort of steps back, you know, we step back into Zoe, into our ho homes, and instead of emerging into the political life in the city, we emerge into the political life in the technological space, except that in the technological space, we don't really have the same protections. No, and as a matter um, of fact, as a matter of fact, within that technological space, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg has just laid down a marker within the last 24 hours in which he objected to Twitter fact-checking Donald Trump. He objected to something that I think would be part of a normal, normally understood civil discourse and it's clear to him that his network, his platform is more important to him than individuals or principles. We're going to have to stop this conversation here just to uh, go to a break. We've been talking to Blanca Domagalska. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and talk about the future with a futurist. Well, I've mentioned them already, but once again, thanks to Kat Pastor, who's in the control room, running things and making things hum, even in very technologically chaotic environments. Uh, also, Josh Nalea is the producer of this particular episode, and we will be back tomorrow. <laughs> I'm trying to think what tomorrow is. Tomorrow's going to be the nose. Uh, we are actually going to talk about the HBO adaptation of I Know This Much Is True, the Wally Lamb novel. All right, so here we go. Uh, we're going to talk about what happens when we emerge from our cocoons, from our liminal spaces. And we're going to do that uh, with futurist Gerd Leonhardt, uh, speaker and author of several books, including his latest, Technology versus Humanity, The Coming Clash Between Man and Machine. Uh, well, a very good transition from Blanca then. Welcome to our <laughs> show, Gerd. All right. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. So one of the things that you have done as a mental exercise is, I think you call it backcasting rather than forecasting. You place yourself in the future and then look back across an imagined stretch of time. Uh, and we're, we're not going to get to go through all of your backcasted uh, predictions here, but we, we should talk about a few. It seems to me that healthcare is a really interesting and medical care and medical science is an interesting place. I mean, that could go either of two ways, I would think. You're, you're basically suggesting that there'll be a reversal of the privatized healthcare model. Tell me more. Well, I think what we're clearly seeing is that um, healthcare in, in the US, at least, to a large degree, has been broken before the virus crisis, right? And, and now we have more reason to believe that we have to be more prepared for the future. So basically, the preparedness is something that is a public function, right? It, it cannot just be an entirely private function because you see what happened in the U.S. in terms of the different systems in place. It's chaotic. It's moving too slow. It's not providing the right service at the right time. And here in Europe, of course, most of the of the healthcare system is is uh, public, right? Collective. 
So that offers different advantages. So I think we're going to see a lot of money moving into healthcare because clearly now, you know, the finding a therapeutic, finding a vaccine, it's a huge priority. So it'll be a huge boon of funding, which will be great. A huge boom for research and for researchers and for science. And maybe somebody's going to believe in science again. Who knows? Although uh, we're already seeing some pretty ominous polling about uh, uh, the number of Americans who would not want to take a COVID-19 virus. But isn't there also just a possibility? I mean, a lot of it depends on who makes the decisions, who derives which lessons from the current scenario. Uh, people in power, people who have privilege, people who have access to good preventive care can just as easily look at this uh, situation and say, well, people like me did a lot better than poor people, than black people, you know, that there's something to be said for being able to afford the next generation of gene therapy derived treatments or pan viral medications um you know and, and they, there's probably not enough to go around so why don't i just keep my superior advantage here why won't that happen well i think you know in, in a collective emergency like this and this is only the first instant that there'll be others uh, including technology emergencies and so on uh, you have to have a public response that doesn't mean you can't have the extra add-ons by yourself. And, you know, if you're able to reprogram your genes for a million dollars, maybe that's something you would want to do. But, you know, in a, uh, in a collective situation like this, you can only be as happy as your neighbors down the street. And this is why we here in Europe are now going to support the Italians and the Spanish, even though, you know, some of the, the issues in place are not entirely uh, externally made, right? So we have to take care of each other. I think this is the approach behind the collective healthcare system. Uh, which is not really, uh, you know, the opposite of being able to afford whatever you want to afford on top of it. But uh, it, it does it does beg the question, have we learned something in this crisis? And I think we have, uh, which is solidarity. Right? We have to have solidarity and we have to solve some large problems together. Well, I mean, yeah. And, and uh, first of all, I we're going to link to your work uh, on our web page. And I hope you're right about a lot of the things that you say, but uh, including that idea of solidarity, maybe at the multinational level. Although, once again, why wouldn't we, I mean, it, there's a darker possibility there, too, which is that we're going to have separate supply chains because these globally linked supply chains kind of broke apart here. Uh, yep. We're going we're gonna to have nation states with burgeoning militaries and, and even more forms of nativism than we've already been through. I mean, there's some people who look at the same fact pattern and say, oh, the problem wasn't nativism. It was not enough nativism. So why are you so hopeful that um, uh, sort of an EU model will you know, catch on even more well i think you know we're facing global issues and global opportunities so if you're looking at the issues facing us in the very near future covid is only the very first wave so after that is climate change right mm -hmm. other pandemics which is clearly coming the rise of technology that treats humans like machines uh, geoengineering genetic engineering the story goes on and many of those are vast opportunities for research and science and general societal improvement of course right but on the other hand these are issues that we have to tackle globally i mean imagine if a country like china or russia would be advancing on artificial intelligence with genetic engineering and we would not because we have ethical restraints right or you know th this would create all kinds of weird situations so part of the solution is to find things together like in this pandemia initially the chinese were cooperating and and without limits really and without regards to patents even 
Uh, that has changed now, of course. <laughs> and, and, and now it's basically we have to gear up for, for a future where those issues are too big to be left to some corporations or some countries or some privileged users. Right. I mean, science made this step pretty easily and made it a long time ago so that, yes, when this broke out, the, the genome of this virus was sequenced in a matter of two or three weeks, mostly right. by the by the Chinese, who then put it on uh, open source databases so everybody could look at it. The question I guess I have are big multinational economic conglomerates and nation states going to have uh, the same level of open mindedness. Uh, unfortunately, we have uh, run out of time. There's so much to say, uh, so much more yeah. to say with future. Gerd Leonhardt, and we're going to post his work, Welcome to the Great Transformation, How COVID-19 Changed Our World. Future, futurist Gerd Leonhardt looks back from yes. the future. Meanwhile, thank you so much for joining us today. And those of you who listened today, you now know a new word, right? Liminality, liminalism, you pick. Uh, but it is that state that you've been feeling so much right now, like you've left one reality, but you haven't joined another. The past is dead, and the future is powerless to be reborn. Sitting in